Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad that y'all are here. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're doing well. Um, to kind of reiterate what Kristen said, we have a lot of things coming up that, like, deadline-wise, whether it be the man camp or if, anything like that, please, please get signed up for that. Those are all really, really awesome ministry opportunities, and we're looking forward to them, um, but you got to get signed up. And so there's that public service announcement. Uh, we'll continue kind of walking through the book of Nehemiah, and today we kind of hit the midway point of this whole book, and it's kind of been this just one thing after another, right? Like we've seen Nehemiah pray, we've seen Nehemiah travel a thousand miles back to Jerusalem, start building the wall, this on and on and on. It's been this hurry, hurry up and go thing. Uh, my favorite movie, without a doubt, and most people probably wouldn't guess it, but it's a movie called Cool Hand Luke. Um, the interesting thing, like it came out several years before I was even born, but I watched it even a little bit last night because I knew I was going to talk about it. And it's that movie that if I've had a long day or something's crazy, I can watch it for the 10,000th time. Um, it's what I always name my fantasy football team. They're the Cool Hand Lukes. Like, I love the movie. It's basically about a guy who goes to prison. I know it sounds like a great family time. Um, it's got Paul Newman, who is cooler than all of us. And he goes off and he's in a chain gang, basically. And they have to do all these work projects, and the movie kind of revolves around that and their interactions. But there's one scene where they have this particularly difficult job. Uh, they have to work on a road, and they have sprayed boiling tar over it, and it is just endless piles of sand as far as they can see. And all they're going to do is shovel this sand all day long. It's going to take forever. It's back-breaking work. And at one point where everybody's starting to get a little bit tired, Cool Hand Luke just kind of goes into overdrive. And he starts shoveling sand faster than everybody, and everybody's like, what's going on? And he just kind of gets them all into this hyper mode, and man, guys are slinging sand everywhere, running by each other, moving on to the next pile, and finally they, they go to get to another pile, and the guy goes, what do we, wh where'd it go? And they said, I think we're done. <laughs> they kind of look up, and they go, it's only halfway through the day, what do we do? He's like, I think we get the rest of the day off. And so this is kind of what Nehemiah has done. In 52 days, Nehemiah has done what people for a hundred years had tried to do and could not do. In 52 days, he has rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And it's going to culminate today, and we're going to see that the wall is finished. And so look in Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 15. Just do a couple verses to begin with. In verse 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In the 52 days, and when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived what this work had been, or that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So in 52 days, Nehemiah does what I don't think any of us could do. He rebuilds this massive, massive wall. 52 days before this, Nehemiah had looked out and he could see the city of Jerusalem he could see the temple, and all around it were just these massive stones that had been toppled decades and centuries before. And in 52 days, without the assistance of modern machinery, he puts it back together. Like, we do everything today with modern work. Like, I mowed yesterday. I didn't go out there with one of the things and cut the grass that way. I got on a lawnmower and drove around. Like, whenever we done projects here at the church, like, we had to dig a ditch. We didn't get out there with shovels. We had a bobcat. It was great. CJ hit the building with it. It was fun. Um, like, everything we do today, we use modern technology and equipment, and these guys didn't. In 52 days, Nehemiah gathered people, and he encouraged people, and what they brought to the table was this. 
That's why Nehemiah prayed at one point, God, strengthen our hands. Because they moved all these stones and they put it back together. And now Nehemiah looks and he sees around this entire city a defensible wall. The project's complete. And this could be a moment where, you know what, if pride's ever going to creep in, like if you take a few steps back and you probably have to go out into the field to really see how big this wall is, Nehemiah could have looked at it and gone, I'm pretty awesome. But no, Nehemiah keeps his focus on God. And some people, like within historians, they say, man, there's, there's no way that these Israelites could have built two miles of wall in 52 days. Because some people look at the Bible and go, hey, it's not trustworthy, it's not a history book, but it is. But you can even look into the world of academics and go, yeah, that's possible. We know it because people have done it before. In the 400s, there was a city known as Constantinople. And it had these walls built around it. And I had a picture of them for the very first message that we did in this series. It was also a snow day, so a lot of people missed out on it. Um, but they're called the Theodosian Walls. These walls stood as the, like, poster child of wall building back in the day. Because if you were going to attack the city, you got up there and there was a moat that they could fill with water, crocodiles, whatever. Um, and if you got through the moat, you got to a wall. And there were people shooting at you from it. And if you got over that wall, what you found was, oh, there's another moat. And there's another wall. And if you manage to get past that, you realize that's the actual wall. There were three walls built, and for 800 years, no one could break in. It wasn't until the invention of gunpowder and a really, really big cannon that they were finally able to break the wall down. But something can break a wall down. God. Because in the 400s, this earthquake came through, and it cracked and just wrecked the walls. And it alarmed the people of Constantinople because about a month's march away was a guy named Attila, the Hun. And he was coming to take their city. And so the people worked day and night. And within a month, they repaired this massive, massive wall structure. So can that be done? Yes. And Nehemiah was a phenomenal leader. And he came in. And he built this wall up. And there was a result in that. It says, and when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. The enemy's here, and they're afraid. They're afraid because they understand there's something bigger than them at work. When it says they fell in their own esteem, that's the way we translate this particular Hebrew. The, the actual like word-for-word -word translation is they fell in their own eyes. See, in Hebrew, they, they kind of write figuratively. And when it says they fell in their own eyes, there's a moment in every person's day where we're really honest about who we are. Like you lay down, you go to bed at night, before you drift off, like you see yourself through your own eyes. You know your faults, you know your failures, you know the things you struggle with, you know the areas where you puff yourself up too much. And for these people, they had this moment where they realized there is something bigger going on here. Because as God advances, darkness is pushed back. Like God had been at work in this project. God's the one who's ultimately leading it. And God is pushing back against darkness and darkness is being exposed. These enemies of the people, the enemies of the Jewish people at the time who had looked at them and had thrown taunts at them, who had threatened them with violence, that wanted nothing to do with them, suddenly understood something's different here. Something's going on that's bigger than us because God was actively pushing back against darkness. We get to see this in the New Testament as well. Like if you read the book of Acts, you get to read about the start of the church in Ephesus. We walked through the book of Ephesians a while ago. I know we're doing that study in equipping class right now. 
Ephesus was a dark, dark place. Even in the ancient world where things were dark in general, Ephesus was a place where there was a lot of witchcraft. Um, there was a lot of just dark, dark arts. And that kind of stuff, like, you, don't, you just don't want to mess with that. Like, even yesterday, I don't remember what it was on, but we, uh, we had some card, and it had, like, different Disney princesses, and we were going through and kind of rating them. Um, but one of them was from The Princess and the Frog, if you've ever seen that one. I was like, I'm not messing with that one. Like, you get into voodoo and that sort of thing. Like, that gets into a whole different level of crazy. And this is what Ephesus was. It was a dark place. Like, in modern times, I've had the opportunity to travel some, and I went to a city in Venezuela. And they say within, like, the witchcraft worldwide view, there are these three points that form a triangle, and that city was one of them. And, man, some of the stuff that they practiced involving these seances and, like, blowing smoke on children, I mean, just weird, weird stuff. That's what Ephesus was. But then the gospel shows up, and Paul begins to preach. And as God advances, that darkness was pushed back to the point where the people took these books of witchcraft and dark arts and they just began to burn them. And the Bible says like the cost was huge, but the people didn't care anymore because light had come in and it had pushed back against the darkness. And this is what happens with Nehemiah. Like these other people start looking around and they realize there's something bigger here. There's something holy. And all their darkness just begins to be pushed back because suddenly God's city is once again shining. We've been called to be that light to push back against darkness. If we look across our world right now, I'm telling you, there's some still really dark areas. Dark areas of injustice, dark areas of racism, dark areas of brokenness. And we've been called to push back against that, to be the light that the New Testament talks about and to reach out and to push back darkness because we know God's advancing. He's doing a great job of it. And we've been called and invited to be a part of that as well. And then something interesting happens. Look in verse 17. It says, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to me. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah and the son of Uriah. And his son, uh, Jehonan, had taken the daughter of Meshlam, the son of Berkiah, as his wife. I love these names. And they also spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now it's interesting, like this is a big celebration moment, right? Like the wall is built, the wall is there, we're going to celebrate, we're going to do all these things. But once again, Nehemiah has to stop down and teach people about oppression. Because he's dealt with that a lot. This entire book, up all these six chapters, there's been one opposition to Nehemiah's leadership after another. And now there's going to be even a good, good moment and as this good, good moment is supposed to be celebrated, one of these guys shows back up. A lot of time as we've read through this story, you'll, you'll hear the name Sambalot, and he's coming against Nehemiah. He's threatened him. He's threatened to kill him. He's tried to kill him, all of these things. And Tobiah's kind of the afterthought. He's the second name mentioned. But here Nehemiah goes, hey, even in the midst of this wall being completed and everyone being able to celebrate it, Tobiah's going to show back up. And Tobiah shows up not as an encouragement to Nehemiah, he sends letters to make him afraid. He sends letters saying, hey, if you're going to stay, you need to put me in charge of things as well because I'm really connected and I've got all these people under my foot. And the way he had done this, he had come in and he basically had people swear allegiance to him and then he had some prearranged marriage, which is kind of weird for us today, but to an extent, I get it. 
Um, years ago when Logan was a little bitty, we had some friends in Fort Worth and we were having dinner with them. And so we made, you know, the kids table and their daughter's the same age as Logan. And we're looking at them. It's like, hey, this is their first date. And it was cute. But then I started looking. I was like, okay, your parents are normal. They're actually fun to be around. Successful. Yeah, what do we do to make this work? Like this, it could be crazy in the future. We don't know. Like I'm going to go ahead and put, put my money on this one. Like dowry, chickens, lambs, what, what do we got? Like I get to an extent, but he did it out of, I'm, I'm joking as well. But he did that, <laughs> but I'm not. Um, he did it as a way to gain control of people. And he used that as an opportunity to come in and lord over people and basically be a source of darkness in their life. And it teaches us a lot about who we associate with. Because these people, I, I get it to an extent, they didn't have good leadership before Nehemiah showed up and they, they were searching for something. But you don't search for it there. You find it in a God-given servant, not in someone who's there to oppress you. And we learn a lot about who we associate with. And sometimes, like, are we called to associate with everyone? To an extent, yes. Like, there are people who are definitely far from God. We've been called to be that light in their life. See, when you do what I do, you're around believers a lot. Like, yes, when I go to work and praying for my kids minister, but like everybody kind of loves Jesus. And so I got to figure out ways to be out there with people who need to know who he is. So yesterday was kind of the start of that for me. Like baseball season started. That's why I'm a little red today. I start my official like farmer's tan every year this time. But it's that place where I know I'm going to be around people that are far from Jesus. You ever been to a little, little kid baseball game? Oh, my soul. <laughs> And of all the things, like my youngest son, who we paid money for him to play so that we can just laugh because that's what's going to happen. You don't know if a kid's going to run to first, third, who knows. Most of them carry the bat to the, <laughs> with them when they hit it. Like in his practice, a fight almost broke out last week. Like that's my area where I know I'm going to be able to get around people and I'm going to be able to be the light. That's why I did our opening prayer yesterday. That's why like everybody there knows that I'm a pastor. So that's a good reminder for me when I start getting a little frustrated where it's like, mm, they know where you work. Um, but I know that I get the opportunity to reach out. Like I'm going to associate with people that they may never show up here. They may be people that I'm probably not going to hang out with a lot. But I know that I'm called to reach out and to be the light to them. But if we're going to submit to someone, if we're really going to be in a relationship, friendship, anything like that, you don't do what these people had done because they'd let Tobiah come in and just rule over their life. Instead of being a light to these people, Tobiah becomes a source of darkness. If you're going to bind yourself to someone, bind yourself to someone godly, not to something else because if you go that route, you will fall. Scripture shows this time and time again. You look at the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau's out, and he comes back, he's really, really hungry. He looks at his brother and says, hey, give me some food. And, Esau, and Jacob goes, okay, I'll get you some, but you got to sell me your birthright real quick. And over a bowl of soup, he sells out his God-given birthright and just begins to screw this family up over and over again. You look in the New Testament, you got Judas Iscariot. I find him to be one of the most profound characters in all of Scripture. Because Judas sits under Jesus' teaching. Judas is there as the Sermon on the Mount's being preached. Judas is there when he looks out and sees Jesus walking on water. Judas is there when he watch him, watches Christ perform miracle after miracle after miracle. Judas is there sitting around a campfire at night, sharing food, listening and talking to and conversing with and no doubt laughing with the Savior. 
But he bound himself to darkness, and later on he finds himself surrounded by a group of priests going, hey, I'll, I'll sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Like, who we associate with, who we bind ourselves to is unbelievably important. And we're called to look for light, not darkness. Because really, these people were driven out of fear. The reason they signed letters of, like, securing themselves to Tobiah, like, they were just scared. And we're just not called to be fearful. Like, Scripture teaches over and over again that we're called to be strong and courageous. Months and months ago, whenever I was kind of looking of, hey, what's our next series going to be, we typically just kind of walk through a book. I knew I wanted to go through something in the Old Testament, and I was really going back and forth between Joshua and Nehemiah. Nehemiah just kind of spoke to a number of the things that we were going to be doing, and so we went that route. But I love the book of Joshua. I typically don't preach the same message more than once, um, but every pastor's got a few go-tos if you need it, and one of mine definitely comes out of Joshua chapter 1. I don't know how many times I've done it. I love in Joshua three different times. He says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. We're not called to live in fear. And I know the last year plus has been insane, and there's been uncertainty, and there's been loss, and there's been all these different things, but we have been called to stay faithful and know that, hey, we're not called to a fearful life. Our God is still in the heavens, and he does as he pleases, and there's never a moment where he goes, I didn't see that coming. There's never a moment where he is shocked because he's in control. And I look to that, and I find that to be such a warm thing to embrace. Because I'm not called to live a fearful life. I'm called to be strong and courageous. That's what Nehemiah is calling these people to do. I'm sure Nehemiah reminded them of those words even. Hey, you don't live in fear. You live strength and courage that comes from our God on high. And then he kind of gets back to the wall in verse uh, 1 in chapter 7. It says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more fearful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they were standing guard, um, let them shut the gates and bar the doors. Appoint guards among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built or been rebuilt. The last thing that we'll see today is we are called to defend what God has built. It's interesting. The wall's done, and you know, there have been guards and everything like that, but it's interesting that Nehemiah includes singers at this point. Because you kind of have this picture of this wall's been built, and we know there's guards are standing there with spears and shields and swords. And then there's a guy singing next to them. I mean, this sounds like a Monty Python movie. Like, suddenly we went from an action movie to a musical. But I love that he includes that he did that because it reminds us that this was an act of worship. Like, as Nehemiah built this wall, this was an act of worship to God. And what do we do when we worship? We sing. And so Nehemiah pulls people, and as they're guarding, there's people standing by him singing praises to who God is. And Nehemiah, being a good leader, he puts good people in charge. He understands that, hey, I need to have the right people in the right place. And so he puts people that he trusts to be leaders over it, and he equips it with singers. And there is just this beautiful time of worship as this wall is complete. See, last week he said the wall was done, but we didn't have the gates up yet. And if the gates aren't up, the project's not finished. Well, now it's done, and a time of worship and celebration breaks out. And he looks out and he says, hey, we're going to leave the doors closed until it's later in the day so people can't come in here and break in. We're going to close them up a little bit early so people can't come and attack us. 
but the work is done. But what God, this is really just the starting point of it. Because it's actually, you know, the, the thing's finished, but now the real work begins. See, God is responsible for this project. Like, when we look around, like, God is really the one who has built up a number of things throughout history, throughout our culture. He's the one who's built them. And then he's invited us and commanded us, hey, you will help defend this. Take the church, for example. Yeah, years ago, people with their own hands built this place. But when I say church, I mean capital C church. God built that. God instated that. It was Christ that looked at Peter and said, on this rock, I'll build my church. And we're called to help defend it. And so, yes, we reach out in doing that. And we, we, we grow in that way. I love that Kristen mentioned the invite cards. Like, those are so important. I keep those in my wallet. I love handing them out. We're also called to grow in God's word and grow deeply in discipleship. And we've been called to help defend that, to not let things come into this place, in this church, in any church that would help, that would tear apart unity, that would tear apart the body. Like, we just, we don't invite that in. Like, we love a unified church. We love when we can come together and worship and smile and we laugh. And God brings all different people and all different, you know, generations and backgrounds. And he brings it together in this beautiful thing that we call the church. And we're called to defend that. And so that's why I tell you guys, like, we always follow through with what Scripture calls us to do. Like, we let this be our guiding thing. It's just like a social club. Like, if we see something in God's word and we go, hey, we haven't really been doing that, we know that we're called to defend it, and so we, we run with God's word. God created the family, and we've been called to defend that. And it's a big calling. Like, when you read through Scripture, I know as, as the husband, as the leader in our household, like, I've been called to love my wife like Christ loved the church, and that's difficult. Not because it's difficult to love her, but because it's hard to love like Christ loved the church, laid his life down sacrificially, I mean, just on and on, yet I know, hey, I'm called to defend that, and so that means I have to, have to live my life a certain way. I know that when I look at my kids, I've been called to, like, lead them, to encourage them, and so sometimes that means discipline, right? Sometimes that means I'm going to say no, and sometimes that means I'm going to say good job, even if they didn't do that good of a job, because they maybe just needed that encouragement, and it's calling to defend that, God's invited and created all these different ministries. We've got so many different things going on. I love it. Every night of the week, it seems like there's something going on in our church, whether that's life groups, women's ministry, men's ministry, kids' ministry, student ministry, all different things. And yet we're called to defend those. Because if we're not careful, something could creep in. There could be lies that creep in. There could be gossip that creeps in. And God's called us to defend that. See, for Nehemiah, yeah, the wall was built, but that was just the start. Don't know how that happened. Um, that was just the start of it for him. Now the real work begins. Now people may try and attack the city because they want to take it over and have the wall for themselves. Nehemiah knows, hey, I'm going to need to have people actively doing and defending, and we see the same thing today. There are just so many areas as we look at our world that still, again, has such, such darkness in it. We're called to defend within that. How do we do that? We do it through obedience, and we do it through standing up in truth. We read through Scripture in obedience. Like, if we're being obedient, if we're following after what God has called us to do, we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to look at our lives at the end of the day and go, okay, I followed after him. I walked in obedience. We're going to see changes in people around us if we follow in obedience. 
if we're sharing the gospel, if we're living that out, people will notice that. We've been called to follow in obedience and then speak in truth. There are so many areas that need truth spoken into them, right? I mean, you just sit down and think of everything that you absorb throughout the day through all of our social media and all these different platforms and everything. Like, we are inundated with so much information. And I don't mean this as a fake news thing, but there's so much that we look at it and go, I just know that that's not true. Like, someone needs to speak truth into that. And that's what we've been called to do. If we know the truth, we need to share the truth. And when we do that, we defend well. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, I'm thankful for your truth and your word. And I, I love as we read this story and it says the wall is finished, God, but my mind just keeps going back to Jesus within that when he said it is finished. When he completed his work. The work on the cross that made a way for us to experience grace and love and forgiveness. God, if there's someone that's here today or watching online, Father, and they, they don't know what that looks like, I pray that they would know the gospel, that you are a loving God, but you're holy, and our sin separates us from you. And being a good person or going to church, that, that doesn't get us back to you, but Christ does. Because in the perfect time, you sent your son who lived a sinless life so that he could lay his life down as the ultimate sacrifice. And through following him and making him Lord of our life, God, we can experience that grace. We can find our way back to you. And so if you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, but every time we say his name, something stirs in you, man, that's the Holy Spirit working on you. Probably the best thing would just to say, God, as best as I know how, I want to turn from my old life. I want to come to you. I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. And in that instant, there's a new creation. And man, do we want to celebrate that. Share that with somebody. God, show us the areas where we need to defend better. Whether that be our church, whether it be at home, whether it be at work, God, make those areas clear to us. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.